May I invite your attention now to that which we consider to be inerrant, infallible, inspired. The very mind of God is black words on a white page. Acts chapter 26. You turn there and follow as I read beginning at verse 12. Acts chapter 26 verse 12. And, and may I say as you're finding that, I'm about to enter into the middle of a, of a story. This is an event out of the life of the Apostle Paul. He is making his testimony and I'm going to jump in right in the middle of that, which is not what you're supposed to do. Please don't try this at home. But um, we're going to start reading in the middle of this testimony at verse 12. I'm simply trying to shorten the text just a bit. So you follow as I read, beginning at verse 12 of Acts 26. Hear now that which is God's truth. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from their darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who are, who hear me this day might become such as I am. Except for these chains. The grass withers and the flower fades, 
But the word of our God, that endures forever. Ladies and gentlemen, I know that you didn't come over here this morning uh, on Easter Sunday morning to hear about my life story, so I'll, I'll make this brief. When I was a, a college entering freshman, I mean, we're at the University of Tennessee, this was 1966, I was standing in some kind of registration line, and I, I forget for what, but the lady behind the table asked me to declare my, my major. <laughs> I, I, haven't, I hadn't given 15 minutes thought as to what my major might ought to be. The only thing that I really wanted to major in was, uh, you know, girls in baseball. But not wanting to look like an idiot, I decided that I'd come up with something. So I, um, I kind of, you know, rolled my shoulders back and I said, yes, uh, my major. Okay, well, uh, my major is, um, I will be majoring in um, pre-law. And uh, then, uh, she not being sufficiently impressed, I sensed, uh, I decided to add a little bit to that. <clears throat> and very quickly, after saying pre-law, I, <laughs> I added this. I'll be majoring in pre-law with an eye towards politics. <laughs> is that not obnoxious? Uh, <laughs> it is. It's just, you know, I, I've always thought that, that I was going to be a lawyer. Um, John Calvin was a lawyer. Martin Luther studied law. Um, but then four years later, 1970, I, I graduated almost immediately became a Christian, and I, I found myself ending up in another career, uh, one where you only have to work one day a week. Uh, it's, it's a good gig. Um, but this morning, I, I, I want to play, play the role of a lawyer with you. Um, I want to argue with you. But when I say I want to argue with you, I, I don't mean that I want to argue with you. What I mean is that I want to argue with you. Did you get that? <laughs> I, I, I don't want to argue with you the way that you argued with your wife on the way to church this morning. I, I want to argue with you. I, I want to give you an argument. I want to give you a case. Um, I, want, I want the facts of the case to argue with you. And, of course, the case I'm talking about is the the... The facts concerning the resurrection. And ladies and gentlemen, the goal is really not to win the argument. That, that may be my penultimate goal, but my ultimate goal is to see us changed. And you know, I bet you've heard that before. You know, one of the criticisms that Christianity gets is that you Christians, you're just always trying to change me. Guilty as charged. But, you know, folks, if I had something that I thought would help you make more sense out of life, and I kept it to myself, how kind would that be? I mean, how, how sweet would that be? I would hope you would do the same thing for me. But, guys, um, you probably have heard most of the case for the resurrection in, in sermons before. Um, that kind of deductive reasoning and argumentation kind of business. But I'm hoping that, that this morning is a, I'm hoping that it's a little bit different. Because there's a part of the argument, there's a part of the case that I think gets short shrift. And, um, 
it's, it's a part of the case that I think is, is a real doozy, first of all. But it's also one that is very hard to deny. And, and, and the part of the case that I'm talking about is this. There was a man whose name was Saul. You can read his story, his, um, his pre-Christian days. You can read about in, um, in Philippians chapter 3. There was this man named Saul, and he was so amazingly transformed, so much so, that they had to change his name. He had to change his name from Saul to Paul. He, he, um, he, he went from being a Christian killer to a Christian preacher. And this man was so changed and changed because he was confronted by a resurrected Christ. And he wasn't the only one, ladies and gentlemen, that was changed. There have been hundreds of millions more since then. Guys, if, if there was ever a man who was an unlikely candidate to believe, it was this Saul guy. Saul was a, was a Jewish monotheist. And, and the idea of worshiping a man was utterly repugnant to him. It was, it was, it was just out of the question. If anyone would have been completely unimpressed by some Easter sermon by Jimmy Young, it would have been this Saul guy. Saul didn't want to believe. And, and he sought to keep others from believing. And yet he did. He did believe. Why? What is it that produced this top-to-bottom change in the life of this man whose name is Saul? It was evidence. Evidence that he couldn't deny. Data that was, that was too real to reject. It was an argument for which he had no answers. The, the facts of the resurrection overwhelmed him. And his life changed. And it changed so dramatically. That every place that Saul visited, every place Paul went, was impacted by the change that they saw in this man. A change that, that, that impacted every place that he went in the Roman Empire. An empire, by the way, which because of the orders of Nero, executed him. Um, it was, uh, one philosopher said that the day would come when men would name their dogs Nero. But they would name their sons Paul (laughs) because of the impact that the man had had. An impact that came from a change that he underwent and a change that he underwent as a result of being overwhelmed with the facts concerning the resurrection. It was an appearance of the resurrected Christ, this massive argument for which he had no answers. It was that 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 overwhelmed Paul and changed him. And, And here's my point in all this, ladies and gentlemen. 
once you get convinced of the resurrection, your life is going to change too. The resurrection argued Paul into that change. And it can argue you into the same one, the same change. And that's what I'm after, ladies and gentlemen. Changed lives. And and I would suggest to you that very few things have as much potential to change us as does being convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. For example, let's, uh, for example, maybe you're, uh, maybe you are one here today who is not yet, not yet a Christian. Well, I'm convinced that one of the things that God may use to draw you to Himself is simply the facts associated with the resurrection. It may be the thing that, that convinces you that it's time to stop your fight, to lay down your arms, and to begin to follow the one that you began to fight, that, that you used to fight. Or if you're a Christian here this morning, if you and I as believers were to get convinced way down deep, you know, in that place where only you and God go, if we were to get convinced down there that Jesus Christ really did shatter the bonds of death and walked physically, bodily out of his tomb, you know what, ladies and gentlemen? It is my contention that that would change us. We might become less materialistic. We might become less fleshly. We might become less carnal, less of a consumer. Why? Why? We might have less fear of the future. Were we, were we genuinely convinced that Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead? So, uh, this morning, I don't have many nice, sweet little stories for you that are all sweet and tingly about spring and tulips. But it seems to me that the arguments will do more to change us than stories about tulips. I want to, I, I want to, I, I want you to let the facts of the resurrection argue with you. I, I'm not out to score some kind of intellectual victory. I'm simply hoping that um, all of us might find ourselves overwhelmed with the delight of the resurrection. So here, here comes my here comes my lawyer role. And and right off the bat, my, my opponent says to me something like this. He says, um, well, that's nice. That's a nice story you got there, Dr. Young, for, um, for somebody like Paul. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who, uh, who, uh, was met on the road to Damascus by the resurrected Christ. But, but uh, what does that have to do with me? I mean, uh, I, I, I don't even know where Damascus is. Uh, and by no means have I ever had a meeting with Jesus Christ as a resurrection. I mean, I've had not, I've not had one of those, those uh, bone rattling, eye popping, uh, ex- experiences with Jesus Christ. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to wait around until I have an experience like Paul had? Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's where our text comes in. I want to show you how Paul would answer your question. 
I want to show you how Paul would address that issue and how he did address it with two people who are very much, whose situation is very much similar to ours. He is, of course, in this text in Acts 26, speaking to the king of the Jews, Agrippa, and to Festus, um, who is the Roman governor. The combined religious, uh, religious and political authorities in that region, he was speaking to them, but they had had no meeting with Jesus, like me and you haven't had any meeting with Jesus. And I want you to notice how Paul deals with them. And I want you to understand that the folks to whom he is speaking here in Acts 26, they didn't want to believe either. Maybe like you. Now, notice how Paul addresses them. If you've got your Bible still open in Acts 26. This event in Acts 26 takes place about 18 to 20 years after the resurrection. So keep that in mind. That's important. About 18 years after the the event of the resurrection, this takes place in Acts 26. Paul's testimony is being given to, as I said, King Agrippa, big dude in Israel, and Festus, big dude in Rome. And he starts out with those guys by giving a little bit of his life story in verses 2 through 11, which we didn't read, and you're welcome to read it at your own leisure. But then he gets to verses 13, 14, and 15, and he begins to weave in this idea that he had this meeting with the resurrected Christ. And um, then, as if it were some kind of thunderclap, I guess, in, in verse 23... He says something about Jesus being the firstborn to rise from the dead. Or the first to rise from the dead. And and I call it a thunderclap. Because at this point, right after Paul mentions that, Festus, the Roman governor, interrupts him and says, Paul! I mean, the text says he said it in a loud voice. And I got plenty of loud voices for you, but I'll, I'll, I'll spare you. He says, Paul! You've lost your mind! Your great learning has cost you your sanity. And then I want you to notice, ladies and gentlemen, how Paul replies. It's in verse 25. He says, um, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, that's quite a claim. <laughs> I mean, in a culture like our own, where, where people like Michael Foucault say that all claims to truth are nothing more than claims to power. The whole idea of somebody standing in front of authorities and saying what I'm saying to you is true. And rational? Wow. (laughs) And and it's an ironic, it's an irony to me that the only one in this setting who doesn't have power is the one who's claiming to speak truth. And he he says, after he says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking something true and rational, he turns to Agrippa and he says, Agrippa, you know the facts. I mean, none of this was done in a corner. 
in an effort to demonstrate the truthfulness of what he said, he says to these men, none of this was done in a corner. None of this was done in private. None of this was done in secret. And by his so doing is in essence inviting them to go check it out. Why don't you investigate it? None of this is done in a corner. Go, 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 go check my facts, would you? You know, guys, just to try to illustrate what, what I think Paul is doing here. I, I have a friend who, uh, what, right after he got out of college, the only thing he wanted to do was fly airplanes. And so he joined the Air Force, went to flight school, and, and somewhere in flight school, um, he developed some kind of medical problem, and I think it was with his heart. I, I forget exactly. But he had uh, some kind of medical problem, and he was, he was washed out of flight school. He was medically disqualified. And then the Air Force found out that his second great love was history. And so the Air Force decided they were going to send him to get all of the degrees necessary so that he could become an expert in history and teach at the Air Force Academy. And um, uh, while he was going to school, they were so impressed with his work that they commissioned him to write a, um, a history of the Air Force. Now, gang, um, I think you know this, but the Air Force is is comparatively very young compared to the other branches of the military. Um, in, for instance, in World War II, there was no Air Force. The Air Force was a part of the Army. It was called the Army Air Corps. And the um, the Air Force was born somewhere in the 1945, 46, 47 framework, right in there. And so John, my friend, was in the early 80s, is writing a history of the Air Force, which meant he was about 35 years after the actual event of the birth of the Air Force. Now, here's my point, guys. When his, when his history came out, there were plenty of people still around, plenty of people still alive who could have, who could have corrected his mistakes. Maybe John lied and they could have debunked his claims. But because those people were still alive, everything that John wrote was under the scrutiny of people who had been there for the actual event. That's what Paul is doing. No, Festus, I haven't lost my mind. What I'm telling you is true. Why don't you go ask? People are still alive who can verify all of my facts. Go ask. And you know what surprises me, ladies and gentlemen? They never did. And neither have some of you. It makes me wonder. Do you not want the facts? Are you afraid of the truth? Did y'all see the movie, 1997? I, I think it was the all-time biggest grocer of, of all moviedom. Um, the Titanic. Did y'all see that? I loved the Titanic. Just loved the movie. And, I mean, was stunned by it for weeks after having seen it. But um, right after all of its successes, an article appeared in the New York Times. And I forget the, the name of the author of the article in the New York Times. And he was questioning some of the accuracy of the of some of the scenes in the movie. 
And the one scene in particular that he that he debunked was a scene where if you if you saw the movie after they had hit the iceberg and there was pandemonium that broke out on the on the on the deck while they were loading the lifeboats and and all of the rich guys were uh, trying to you know pay money to all the sailors and the sailors because there was such pandemonium had to take out their guns and fire into the air and and uh, because you know the rich guys were and they kept saying this is for women and children women and children only and um, the rich guys were paying them off. And, and this author in the New York Times said, that never happened. There was not one single report, not the first report, that any wealthy people, um, by s- scrambling to save themselves, um, jeopardized the lives of any wife and children. In fact, au contraire, John Jacob Astor, the, the Bill Gates of 1912? John Jacob Astor, when he got his wife, his pregnant wife of 19, into a lifeboat, stepped back. And he drowned that day. Benjamin Guggenheim, another wealthy American, made sure that his wife and his, uh, his female servant was on this lifeboat, was offered a place in the boat and turned it down, stepped back and died. In that ocean. And so the author of the New York Times article um, um, posed this question in his article. He said, why did the producers and and the directors, why did they lie about this? Why didn't they simply tell the truth? And he answered his own question in his article and he said... I guess the reason they didn't tell the truth, because were you to tell a truth like that in our day, people wouldn't believe it. That men acted so heroically. All I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is if you want to verify the facts, you need to go examine some of them. And if I'm getting it wrong... If the church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years has gotten it wrong. Then for heaven's sake, show us that. But, But the more impressive point here to me. Is that many of you who call this balderdash will not go and check the facts. Ah, uh, but um, my opponent raises his hand and says, objection! Objection! Um, whereas indeed Herod and Agrippa had some people that they could have contacted and they didn't. Those people are no longer alive today. And we cannot speak to anyone who was a witness to the resurrection today. And the court of public opinion says, sustained. Okay? But that brings us to Paul's next word, ladies and gentlemen. Because he says in this sentence in verse 25, not simply that it's true, but he also says it is rational. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, 
Is this story of the resurrection rational? I can tell you this much, ladies and gentlemen, cases like this that land in our courts all across America frequently. Cases that are decided and verdicts that are given, which are based on evidence that are beyond all reasonable doubt. People go to the electric chair as a result of circumstantial evidence. I'll tell you what. Imagine this. Imagine, imagine that there is a, a case where a, a, a person commits cold-blooded murder and he does so in the presence of 500 witnesses. And not only that, his, his ruthless act is caught by a television TV crew. And then, in addition, he is arrested, the, the accused is arrested with a smoking gun in his hand and the bullet, ballistics later proved, that came from this gun killed this, this um, victim. And on this gun, there is contained a very clear set of prints of the accused. And so the cumulative weight of all that evidence is presented in the courtroom by the prosecuting attorney. But then the, the attorney for the defense steps forward and says he, he wants, he wants to seek acquittal for his client on the basis of the lack of absolute certainty concerning the guilt of his client. And he argues this way. He says, number one, the, the 500 witnesses, they suffered from a mass hallucination. All at the same moment. Secondly, the television account was a carefully contrived electronic charade. And number three, the ballistics report matching the fatal bullet to the gun that was being held by my client was, was evidence that was tainted by the lab. And then finally, the fact that his client's fingerprints match the prints taken from the gun used to kill the victim, a, a fact admitted by the lawyer, but he said, or he argued, that this represents the first occasion in history where two different people are found to have an identical set of fingerprints. <laughs> And then this defense rests its case on the philosophical appeal to the theoretical possibility that his client is a victim of strange and extraordinary circumstances. The circumstances, um, the, the evidence amassed against his client uh, leaves us in a position of having reasonable doubt. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as a rational person, how do you react to the case presented by the defense? Well, you say, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> it's a bunch of foolishness. <laughs> I mean, uh, that, that man is, 
he's guilty as he can be. And, uh, and, uh, all those arguments by the defense, uh, they don't fool anybody. In fact, <laughs> all of that, that, that stuff from the defense is downright irrational. Really. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, the case for the resurrection has been presented for centuries. And about the best our opponent has come up with is this. Those 500 people that witnessed the resurrection, they hallucinated. In the face of the weight of the evidence, the scoffing continues. Which makes me wonder, if people even care about the facts. You heard the old adage, (laughs) don't confuse me with the facts. Because if that's true, then I have built my life on sinking sand, and that is not a prospect that I want to consider. No, ladies and gentlemen, I I cannot produce a video of the resurrection. But the church for centuries has proved its case beyond all reasonable doubt. And time and time again, challenged its opposed, its, its opposition to examine the facts. And the facts go unexamined. And the fact, ladies and gentlemen, I would like for you to consider this morning is simply this. How do you explain the changed life in the Apostle Paul? How about Peter? How about the countless millions since them? How about the people who are sitting in the same pew with you this morning? How do you explain the church? Where, where on earth did the church come from? I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that if the resurrection story is embraced, it will change you. And I suggest the reason that you've never examined it is because the change is something you either don't want or it frightens you. Text in the text, King Agrippa says to Paul, Are you trying to convert me? And his answer was, You bet your bippy I am. And I, ladies and gentlemen, am 
pointing you to the same Jesus Christ that converted so many of us. True and rational. That's the claim. It's Christianity's claim. Still don't believe it. Then my dear friend, may I simply ask of you this. Go check it out. Go check it out, my friend, because there's a lot riding on this. There's a whole lot at stake. Or, or are you not interested in the facts? Do the facts scare you? If you're not interested in the facts, that would mean that your position is irrational. For us Christians, I, I heard this said this week. This is not an original. It's a quote from Barbara Johnson. She said, we Christians, we're Easter people living in a Good Friday world. And the longer I live, ladies and gentlemen, the more Good Friday this world looks like to me. More brokenness, more pain, more sorrow, more senseless killing, more fracture, more disillusionment. And it simply makes us Christians long for heaven. And, and heaven, that's, that's another something that that I have no video of. But wouldn't you love it if it's true? Doesn't your soul long for it? It's the resurrection that proved that it is true. And it's the one who resurrected that's going to take me there. If you're here this morning and not yet redeemed, come go with us to heaven. The same Christ that's going to take his people there is offering to take you there. Or, you just may prefer irrationality. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will use the beauty of this event to encourage your people. And would you use it to challenge all others? To simply make the effort of trying to discover where truth is found. And if truth has not been proclaimed from this pulpit this morning, oh God, I pray that you would stop up the ears of every listener. But if truth has come from this pulpit, would you use it? To create such a spiritual crisis that more will end up just where Paul ended up.
yielded and submitted to Jesus Christ. The one who lived the life that I should have lived. And then died the death that I should have died. And then resurrected. And now awaits me. And not only me, but all others who call upon this Christ as Savior and Lord. Would you do that again, O God? Do it now. We ask it. In Jesus' name.